I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2015. Enjoy. I always enjoy the opportunity to come to understand the meaning of words more thoroughly and uh, more completely. And that is one of the pleasures in reading a new book called Insight Out. Get Ideas Out of Your Head and Into the World, a book which helps us understand in much more comprehensive fashion what is meant by terms like imagination, creativity, innovation. Those are terms which many of us, most of us probably use pretty much interchangeably, but they each play a really important role, a crucial role in successful entrepreneurship in this modern world in which we all live and try to function and succeed. And uh, the author of this book, Insight Out, is uh, Dr. Tina Selig. She earned a Ph.D. in neuroscience from Stanford University Medical School and is now professor of the practice in the Department of Management Science and Engineering at Stanford School of Engineering and also executive director of the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. So for many years now, she has been working with young people to help them understand and then harness uh, their own creative ideas and entrepreneurial ventures. She is responsible for uh, uh, a previous bestseller called What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20 and another book called Ingenious, A Crash Course on Creativity. And uh, this newest book is published by HarperCollins. Again, it is called Insight Out, Get Ideas Out of Your Head and Into the World. And uh, Professor Tina Selig, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Wow, that was such a fabulous introduction. Thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. And this is a great book. I have really enjoyed uh, exploring it uh, on a couple of different uh, levels. I wonder if we could start with the, the, the rather personal note on which the book begins with uh, uh, the, the story you relate of coming across a letter which you yourself had, in effect, written to yourself 30 years earlier. Yeah, it was quite a amazing story. I mean, really, somebody couldn't have made this up. I wrote this book called What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, and soon after it came out, I got an email from an old, old friend I hadn't seen since I was a teenager, and he said, gosh, you know, is this the same Tina Seeley? We went to camp together when we were kids. And so I thought, wow, of course, and I knew that he had sent me a bunch of letters in those days when we actually wrote letters, you know, on paper. So I went through a big box of letters my parents had sent to me when they moved, and I found the letters he wrote, but more interesting, I stumbled upon one letter I had written to myself on the eve of my 20th birthday. Now, you realize I've written this book, What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, and all of a sudden this letter from 30 years earlier <laughs> on the eve of my 20th birthday pops into my hand. And the letter basically said, I'm completely lost. I don't know what I'm doing. I have such huge dreams for myself. I have no idea how to get from where I am now to where I want to be. And I could feel that every day now, teaching at Stanford, the same thing in my students. The idea that they have such incredible aspirations, and I felt like it was my responsibility to think about how do you actually get your ideas out of your head and into the world? How do you go through that process? And even after te years teaching this topic, I realized that there were a lot of miscommunications and wanted to put a stake in the ground that was going to help uh, other people um, make their dreams come true and sort of live the lives that they, they dream to live. 
I really appreciated something that you said about the way in which at least much of formal education tends to fail its students. And I'm I'm applauding that as someone who happens to uh, teach at a college as, as my full-time job. So uh, I'm in the trenches with you, but I see this happen, and I've certainly been guilty of it myself. You say at one point, unfortunately, most formal education deals with memorization as opposed to innovation. It focuses on learning about heroes as opposed to teaching students to be heroic. And it presents problems with one right answer as opposed to real-life challenges with an endless number of viable solutions. Here's my favorite line. People should emerge from school with agency, feeling empowered to address the opportunities and challenges that await them. I guess what you're saying is you came to realize in a clearer way your responsibility as a college professor to offer that up to your students. Exactly. Well, you know, we live in a very different world than our education was designed for, right? It was designed before there was books and the Internet, and, you know, people had to get up and lecture to transmit information. But information is a commodity now. We can all find out this information. And the world is changing so fast. It really is our responsibility to teach people, A, how to learn, and how to tap into their passions um, so that they can uh, solve the problems that they really want to solve. The world is filled with lots of challenges, and we really need to prepare people uh, to to address them, you know, whether they're the individual challenges in their own life to the challenges that, you know, face the planet. Hmm. Before we start talking about your book a little more specifically, I wonder if you could say a word about this thing called the Stanford uh, Technology Ventures Program. Uh, I suspect that the whole reason for its existence folds nicely uh, into what we are going to be talking about today. Great. Yeah. So I'm fortunate enough to be the executive director of the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. This is a program I helped build over the last 16 years. And essentially, our philosophy is this. We're in the School of Engineering at Stanford. And the philosophy is that it's no longer good enough for students to come out of school with a purely technical training. They need to understand the entrepreneurial world in which they're going to be working, whether they're individual contributors, running a team, leading an organization, or even starting a company. They need to know how to put together effective teams. They need to know how to to lead. They need to know how to negotiate. They need to know how to be creative problem solvers. In fact, to be honest, we say that uh, teaching entrepreneurship is a Trojan horse for teaching very, very important life skills. These skills are important no matter what you do. And you can be entrepreneurial in everything you do. I guess that's a really great place for us to start because actually I think that is really crucial to us even being able to take in a lot of the ideas that you share here because I think the idea of being an entrepreneur or entrepreneurship or entrepreneurial skills, that's a term that we tend to think of fairly restrictively. And I, for one, have never used that term in describing anything that I do in my very busy, complex life. And in fact, in the way that you're using this term, it's it's a term we should not be scared of and we should readily apply uh, to ourselves even if we've never done that before. Explain how we can open up this, uh, our sense of what it means to be entrepreneurial and why we should do that. Oh, thank you so much for asking that. Um, if you came to our offices at Stanford, painted on the wall in very big letters, it says, entrepreneurs do much more than imaginable with much less than seems possible. And that is the core of what it means to be entrepreneurial. It means 
seizing opportunities, leveraging resources, making things happen. I am sure you do that every single day in your life. And if you understand that you're an entrepreneur, it gives you that mindset that really you are a problem solver. Um, it's interesting. We had a, a brand new dean, and she's fabulous, who just uh, started in our in the School of Engineering, and she's a physicist, quite talented. And at first, she came in and was sort of allergic to the term entrepreneurship. I mean, she was very, very actively saying, I don't like this word. And she went and talked with every single faculty member in the School of Engineering at Stanford. That's hundreds of people. And she, at the end, said, I've changed my mind. I understand now that entrepreneurship is about problem solving and that that's what we do here. And that is core to the philosophy and the approach that we have here. And so it's something that is super important for everyone to embrace from young kids to anyone you know, of any age, that if that they, too, can address the challenges around them and, and come up with really, really creative solutions. I appreciate how you take this apart uh, in the first chapter of the book, saying that uh, there are three elements to the entrepreneurial mind, that you need to see the world as opportunity-rich, uh, you need to have a specific set of tools for solving problems, and each of those was addressed in earlier books. And this book really points to that third element, which is crucial to successful entrepreneurship, moving from inspiration to implementation. Yeah, so I, 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 this, I didn't realize until I got to the end that this book was the third part of the trilogy. Now, the book's going to certainly be read in any order. They're, they're not designed to be read one, two, three. But what I wish I knew when I was 20 is really about having an entrepreneurial mindset about seeing the world as opportunity rich in genius is really you get to walk right into my classroom, and it's all about the tools I teach about creativity and innovation. That book's called Ingenious. And this book really weaves them both together and shows the relationship between your attitudes and your actions. And essentially, I walk people through this invention cycle, going from imagination to creativity to innovation to entrepreneurship, showing the attitudes and actions that have to happen along the way to really bring your ideas to life. As you are introducing us to this concept, one of the things you do is is uh, help us understand the, the background behind the, the phrase, thinking outside the box, <laughs> which yeah. uh, a lot of us use rather carelessly. And it's so interesting to know exactly the origins of this phrase. Share that with our listeners. Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I, I personally am not a fan of that fa- phrase. And in fact, most of the people I know who teach creativity aren't either. Um, because it's used as a catch-all. It's used as a cliche. You know, if I ask people, hey, what does creativity mean to you? They go, well, thinking outside the box. I said, well, what does that mean? And it turns out that 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 term comes from the old puzzle that you might be familiar with, where you have nine dots, you know, rows of three rows of three dots, and your goal is to create, to connect all the dots using lines, four, four or fewer lines, without taking the pen off the paper. And the only way to actually do that is to draw beyond the frame, the invisible frame of that box, to, uh, to allow the lines to connect. And that's where the term thinking outside the box comes from. Now, most people don't know that, and so when they even say it, they don't even know what that means. So I really challenge people to think much more systematically about what it means to be creative and what tools you actually need to make that happen. Right after you explain the origins of the phrase, you you use another phrase, which I find really intriguing. Uh, And it's really the point of your whole book, but I I sort of love the way these words kind of 
frame this in a way that is kind of maybe surprising to us. Um, you're saying, in reality, creativity requires a complex set of skills, attitudes, and actions. I mean, much more important than thinking outside the box, would suggest. Intimately related to imagination, innovation, and entrepreneurship. Here's the part I love. To harness our creativity, we need a robust set of definitions for all parts of the creative and entrepreneurial mm-hmm. process. Right. But I think that's so intriguing. I think most of us, when we think about creativity, think of it as something that at it, f- by its very nature needs to be unleashed and, and, and not harnessed or limited in, in any way. And, of course, in a sense, that kind of creativity is so aimless that it ends up maybe accomplishing nothing or very little. And this notion of harnessing creativity uh, for, for a productive end, that's really valuable and probably especially valuable for people that we immediately and most obviously think of as being creative. But think about it. We harness our physical abilities when we become an athlete or our artistic abilities when we become, you know, a painter or our um, musical abilities. You know, we have all of these innate abilities, and yet if they're not used and harnessed, we don't have a coach. We don't have someone who's going to help us um, really use our muscles the right way and to look at things in a a very uh, thoughtful way as an artist. Uh, we end up being very sloppy, and the same thing is true with creativity. With a framework, with a set of tools, you can really focus your abilities and make yourself stronger. I mean, just as if I exercise, I make my muscles stronger. If I use my creativity in a very um, thoughtful way, um, I get stronger at that as well. Absolutely, and towards that end, this book then really helps us sort of understand this whole process. Exactly, that's the hope. Right. So uh, you craft something which you call at one point a scaffolding of skills, which is important here. And it helps us distinguish between terms which you yourself say you've often used indiscriminately uh, as though they're pretty much the same thing. And, And the longer you have explored this, the more you realize that these terms are each distinct from the other. The terms are imagination leads to creativity, creativity to innovation, innovation to entrepreneurship. But we need to make sure we're really clear about imagination, creativity, innovation, and how they are each their own unique step in this process. Yeah, and this is really important. Um, and you, you bring up the fact that I, I do admit that for years I used the words interchangeably. You know, people conflate the words imagination and creativity. You know, they use them interchangeably, or creativity and innovation. But I realized that's a huge missed opportunity. So the framework that I create is very simple, and I wanted it to be simple so that it's easy to remember and then easy to harness. So the idea is that imagination is envisioning things that don't yet exist. Pretty simple, right? It's something we do all the time. Okay? Creativity is applying our imagination to address a challenge. But, but we might be coming up with a solution that's been invented before. That's fine. It's new to me. It might not be new to the world. Innovation, though, is applying that creativity to come up with really unique solutions things that are unique to the world. And entrepreneurship is applying your innovation to bring the the invention of whatever sort to the rest of the world. Now, at each step along the way, there's a set of actions and attitudes that are required to get you to the next step. I liken this to the process of learning to talk, right? We start out with sounds we make. We apply those sounds to make words, apply those words to make sentences, and those sentences to make stories. And that same sort of hierarchy applies when going from imagination to creativity to innovation to entrepreneurship. Hmm. 
I think as I glanced at your book uh, the, the, the first time, the, the, the part that was maybe uh, the most surprising to me was trying to take apart something like imagination. Because I think most of us, when we think about imagination and being imaginative, we think of that as something that, you know, maybe we, we have it or we don't. I mean, an entirely innate ability that some people have in great quantities and others seem to scarcely have any imagination at all. But, 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 but generally speaking, I think most of us think of it as something that either you have it or you don't, like you're a blonde or you're a brunette. And of I course, guess you can change that too. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, no kidding. But, but, but you really help us understand that, that imagination is a tool that can be fostered and nurtured just like anything else. You bet. In fact, there are some interesting surprises in this. Uh, when I started digging into it, I realized, you know, most people think about that their imagination is something that you just sit around, like sit around with your eyes closed under a tree and you're imaginative. Well, that's one way to do it. But really, most great ideas come from starting with a set of data. The more experiences you have in the world, the more you have to work with. Because your imagination is essentially connecting, combining things that already are in your mind. Uh, this is why people who live in very enriched environments can have much more rich in, uh, imagination than those who grow up in a very limited environment. And so the more engaged you are in the world and the more really active engagement, paying attention, listening better, um, watching better, you know, feeling things more, more deeply, the more you have to work with and the more you can envision what might be different. In fact, it's critically important to realize that our passions, our, our ideas about what could be are designed after we're engaged. Before it's your passion, it's probably something you know nothing about. And this is really important because you can do anything from waiting tables to taking a trip around the world, and those experiences are going to really light up opportunities. Hmm. So one of the uh, steps you, you lay out is the uh, importance of, of moving from engaging in the world, uh, with the world in, 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 a, in a fashion that fosters our own curiosity to this idea of, of then envisioning. And uh, this is probably an important step that a lot of us don't fully appreciate. Yes. As I just mentioned, right, you engage first and then you envision my, what might be different. You know, your passions and the things that you care about follow that engagement. I tell a number of stories in the book of people who are going about their lives in a very um, expected way, and then something happens to them that triggers their motivation to do something differently and to solve a problem. Hmm. And that can happen to any of us. If we're actually paying attention, we start seeing places where we re really can make a difference and address the, the challenges that are around us. I appreciated how you uh, help explain why this envisioning skill sometimes erodes over time. You write at one point, the ability to visualize is critically important for imagination. Unfortunately, as we get older, most of us aren't encouraged to practice this skill. Beyond childhood, we stop telling imaginative stories ourselves and focus instead on reading other people's fiction. We stop making artwork and begin looking at other people's creations. I guess one of the reasons this leapt out at me is because my full-time job happens to be teaching music in, in, in a college setting, and my wife is a music teacher, and uh, it seems like there are a lot of forces at play in the world 
which uh, are all about uh, maybe the STEM areas of study, mm-hmm. and in particular uh, also uh, you know business and management and so on. Uh, important areas of discipline of study, which can sometimes crowd out the arts. And you are writing here in a way which suggests that uh, that there is a very important place for that that kind of study, if for no other reason in just fostering your ability to be creative and imaginative in other arenas in your life. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I was at an art show last night. A friend of mine was displaying some artwork, and I went up to one of the paintings, and it said, you know, artist in the name of the artist. And I thought, isn't that interesting? Does that, that person define themselves as an artist? Does that mean that I'm not an artist? Right? I, I, musician, artist, writer. Well, I'm a writer. You know why I'm a writer? Because I write. You know? <laughs> You're an artist if you actually pick up a paintbrush or you know, some clay. You're a musician if I could you know, bang some pots together and start making music. I mean, I don't know if you agree with me, but I, I, on this, I, I, I feel as though by labeling people um, in this way, it means that the other people label themselves as not that. Right? I'm not an artist. I'm not a musician. I'm not a writer. But of course, we all have these skills. And I really am a huge believer that these are things we should be um, baking into our lives in all different ways. Yes, I might not be painting all the time, but to know that that's something I could do, you know, I could pick up a paintbrush and express myself that way. Why not? Absolutely. And of course, uh, it's only when you're given those opportunities and the invitation and the encouragement to do so that you might even discover. Uh, creative outlets you didn't even know were there. And, exactly. Uh, and who knows the ways in which they might be uh, applied, particularly when we get good at this thing called reframing, which you talk about a little later in the book. But one of the most important things that one can do in bringing about innovations and and successfully bringing them to the world is not being stuck in the same framework of the present. Yeah, I spend most of my time teaching. This is what I focus on, is how do you reframe problems? How do you look at a problem from very different angles to come up with really different solutions? Uh, I'll give you just a really simple example. Uh, let's imagine we were, um, a friend of ours was having a birthday, and we were going to brainstorm about a birthday party. Let's have a birthday party, and let's come up with ideas. If we change one word in that prompt from let's plan a birthday party to let's plan a birthday celebration, we've now opened up the frame of possibilities. The question you ask is the frame into which the answer will fall. So if you don't ask the question properly at the beginning, you're not going to get as rich a set of solutions. Right. So by just thinking about looking at the problem you're trying to solve in really different ways, subtle to very bold new perspectives, you end up coming with with really, really different different solutions. One of my favorite moments in the book that speaks to that is where you had a... uh, various teams in one of your classes engaging in brainstorming. And one of the teams uh, was supposed to rethink movie theaters. Mm-hmm. And uh, they came up with all kinds of interesting ideas, including one in which maybe people, while they're watching uh, a movie, would would all be on stationary bicycles. I mm-hmm. mean, getting their exercise while they watch this, uh, this two-hour movie. I mean, what a fabulous idea. But if, if the framing of the question was such that the, the task was to take present-day movie theaters and uh, do what they do just a little better or come out ahead of their competitors, that leaves you stuck in in the original frame. But when the question is framed in such a way that you can envision an entirely 
different kind of movie theater. Right. Uh, I mean, it's it's just thrilling to think about the possibilities that, in a sense, are out there just waiting to be discovered or thought of. Right. That was part of an exercise where I have the students unpack all the assumptions about something. So that was part of all the assumptions of a movie theater or the assumptions of a fast food restaurant or the assumptions about airline travel or hotels. You can pick whatever topic you want. You unpack all your assumptions, and then you turn them upside down. So one of the assumptions was, of course, that you're sitting there quietly, and they questioned that and said, gee, what if we ended up you know, sort of combining a spin class with a movie theater, and you had sort of a spin class where you're watching a movie, and one of their ideas was you pay at the end, right? If you end up, the more exercise you do, the less you pay for the movie. <laughs> so the idea is that you actually have an incentive, even a financial incentive, to, uh, to get more exercise. Mm. Well, there's a whole lot more to be discovered in this wonderful book, which takes us all the way through this cycle, including uh, all kinds of important insights on what it means to take this to that uh, that stage then of entrepreneurship and of of persisting through barriers to uh, bring a, a, an, an innovative idea to full fruition. The book, again, is called Insight Out, uh, Get Ideas Out of Your Head and Into the World. It's published by HarperCollins and the author, uh, Tina Selig. Professor Selig, this was a great pleasure for me to uh, read your book and to speak with you about it today on The Morning Show. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was my pleasure.